Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. You'll remember a while back we did an episode on right upper quadrant pain, biliary disorders, going through some terms, some important diagnoses, and this episode is going to be very similar to that. This week we're talking about the complications of advanced liver disease, of cirrhosis, that type of thing, something that we see all the time. It's much, much more common than acute liver failure, actually. Lots of chronic liver disease cases out there, people with cirrhosis coming in with different complications. The cause of their cirrhosis is usually going to be hepatitis C, followed closely by alcohol use, but there are lots of other causes out there as well, like NASH and fatty liver disease. You might see some acute liver failure during your clerkship or residency, most commonly, that's going to be a Tylenol overdose followed by some of the other hepatitises and alcohol. But again, today we're talking about the complications of chronic liver disease, which is much more common and much more high yield for your rotation than the acute stuff, trust me. And what I want you to take away are the big five diagnoses, the real bad players in chronic liver disease. There's two kind of organ failure complications. There's two complications that are resulting from that portal hypertension. And then there's one other complication that is from the liver function itself failing. And those five bad diagnoses are hepatorenal syndrome and hepatic encephalopathy, varices, ascites with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and the fifth one is coagulopathy. Hepatorenal syndrome, hepatic encephalopathy, varices, ascites with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and coagulopathy. We're going through each of these today, starting with our first organ failure complication, renal failure, which is called hepatorenal syndrome when it happens. And hepatorenal syndrome is very, very bad. These patients usually only have a few weeks left to live. The physiology of this order is kind of unknown, but on your history, the patient is going to say that they're not urinating much. Your lab tests will show an increase in that creatinine. And essentially what has happened is the liver disease has caused renal failure that is unrelated to any of the other obvious renal failure causes like dehydration or things in the kidney itself or post-renal obstruction. It's a really a devastating diagnosis. Do what you can. Not a ton of great treatments. These patients get admitted, obviously. Our second organ failure complication is brain failure, hepatic encephalopathy, it's called. We do understand some of the physiology behind this one because the liver is responsible for clearing waste from the body especially nitrogen and ammonia. And if the liver can't clear that out, the nitrogen and ammonia builds up and causes encephalopathy. And this encephalopathy can range from just like behavior changes to completely unresponsive, but it can be treated. And so we treat this with lactulose and rifaximin. Lactulose and rifaximin, remember that. Lactulose binds up that ammonia so that the patient poops it out, basically. And rifaximin kills the bacteria that create the ammonia in the intestines. Lactulose and rifaximin. 
And I think that the most important thing to remember about hepatic encephalopathy is that it's typically triggered by something else. So a patient will have a GI bleeding, which we're going to be talking about, or they'll have sepsis or a whole host of metabolic problems. They can get hepatic encephalopathy too. It's not usually just completely in isolation. Your lab test for this is an ammonia level, which is pretty sensitive for hepatic encephalopathy and picks up a lot of these cases. It's not like super correlated to the severity of the brain failure itself, though. You can have like a high ammonia and not be that sick and vice versa. But ammonia is your main test. Again, treat hepatic encephalopathy with lactulose and rifaximin. Your third disease. This one results from that portal hypertension. It's varices. And this is kind of covered in our GI bleeding episode. Basically, you get these huge dilated veins in the upper GI tract that are all stretched out from blood being backed up trying to flow through the scarred liver. These varices can rupture and they can bleed. And bleeding from these is usually really, really bad. Because as we'll discuss in a little bit, liver patients don't clot well. So when these bleed, they like, they bleed. Uh, These can get really, really nasty. Patients may present with hepatic encephalopathy, as we talked about before, or they may have melena. If you do pick up on this, there are three treatments to remember. You have to give the proton pump inhibitor that we give all of our GI bleeds, pantoprazole, for example. We give octreotide, and we give an antibiotic. There is an uncommon procedure to know here as well. It's called balloon tamponade, and you can do this with something called a Blakemore tube. Your attendings might ask about that, but basically remember proton pump inhibitor, octreotide, and antibiotic, and then you consider doing that balloon tamponade. Our fourth disease and the other complication of portal hypertension is ascites, but not just ascites, ascites with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. That's the bad one. Again, like all of these, this is really bad. We're talking less than half of these patients will be alive in six months. The classic triad of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is abdominal pain, abdominal tenderness on exam, and fever, and this is basically infected ascites. And the way you diagnose this is by performing something that's pretty straightforward for a procedure. It's called a diagnostic paracentesis. You basically find a big fluid pocket with an ultrasound, and you stick in a needle, suck out a syringe of fluid without poking the intestines or anything, and send it to the lab. You can look up the diagnostic criteria for this if you run a cell count. With spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, you will have more than 250 neutrophils. You also might see high protein and low glucose, which is kind of another classic bacterial infection combo that we see in spinal fluid as well. And we treat this with antibiotics and albumin. It's easy to remember the antibiotics. After all, there's an infection going on. But there is quite a bit of good evidence out there as well for albumin. So your tending is going to be like way impressed if you remember to give albumin in addition to the antibiotics when you present your plan. And our last diagnosis is coagulopathy. Keep in mind that all liver patients are prone to both clotting and prone to bleeding. They get both like at the same time. 
their blood is all messed up. So grab a set of coags and keep an eye out for bleeding and clotting. Those are your five end-stage liver life threats. Hepatorenal syndrome, hepatic encephalopathy, varices, ascites with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and coagulopathy. A quick pearl about non-complicated ascites, which we see like all the time. No peritonitis, but just a big distended belly causing breathing issues and abdominal pain and stretching. Can you perform a therapeutic paracentesis in addition to your diagnostic paracentesis? And the answer is yes. Intentinalis uses four liters as kind of a cutoff. You can take off less than four liters without having to worry about transfusing albumin and getting into some of the higher risk stuff. Once you go over four liters, you have to be a little bit more careful. And personally, I, at least right now, usually admit those patients to the hospital if I need to take off more than four liters. But that's just me. This will be department dependent for sure. That wraps up this episode. You all are awesome. Check out Roshcast to apply some of this stuff. And until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.